Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Thanks for joining us today for Behavior Babes Podcast. Typically, I come on the show and I'm interviewing a great guest, and today the tables have been turned, and I'm going to be interviewed by Dr. Ellie Kazemi. Hi, Ellie. Are you there? I am. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, do you mind starting our listeners off with kind of what brought about this, this podcast today or this discussion? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to turn the tables on you because I have noticed all these social media posts about public policy efforts that you have been involved in in Hawaii. And when I was asking you questions uh, when we were seeing each other in the ABAI, I realized that it was so fascinating. There's so much to learn about public policy and some of the things that you're doing in Hawaii are relevant for me in California. And I realize other people may want to know more about it as well. So I thought it would be great for people to hear what you're doing out there. All right. Well, it's hard to know like how things are received online. Um, definitely got a lot of really great feedback. But I think public policy is one of those areas that I didn't mean to become an expert in. Um, but I definitely think I've gained a lot of expertise along the way. So let me know what questions you have, and hopefully I can answer them. It's interesting that you begin with that, because once I asked if we could do this podcast, you sent me this link to Behavior Babe, um, and you have this beautiful timeline. And as I went through the timeline, looking at all of the different uh, moments and different things that have been uh, past in Hawaii, including the proposed autism insurance legislation and then the license and behavior analysis, I realized that one of the reasons that public policy efforts have been so difficult for me is the legalese. Legislation is written in these complex ways, and I have a really hard time sometimes interpreting it. But then I noticed your timeline is written in this easy-to-digest, easy to understand way. Behavior analysts in general have a hard time speaking in lay terms, and I think this applies with public policy as well. It's hard to understand the legalese written. How did you learn to share information with that, that is so relatable, so easy to digest? You know, for me, it really started in my public policy involvement started in Massachusetts. It was 2010 that we were looking to pass autism insurance, and um, Massachusetts ABBA, our state chapter, had put a lot of energy into getting people together, going to the state capitol, and I just showed up as a participant um, or as maybe a spectator. I was around a lot of really brilliant people, a lot of great minds, and um, it was through kind of being on the periphery that I was able to see that, okay, you go, you testify, you You share your points and ideas. You have to have a bill sponsored. And those things are different in every state for, um, you know, just to kind of put that out there. But in general, I saw that you could be involved. And I went to the signing of the autism insurance law in Massachusetts, which was held at Fenway Park. And um, that's when I first met Lori Unum, who at the time was working as the vice president of governmental affairs for Autism Speaks. This is really important because a few years later in 2012, 
Massachusetts went for licensure, mm-hmm. and there was some contention and competition. There was a psychologist bill and a behavior analyst licensure bill, and it seemed to really, at the end, uh, be in favor of the consumers and be worded in a way that um, could really advance access. It was the following year in 2013 that I moved to um, Hawaii. And when I arrived in Hawaii, I got an invite. Actually, my boss at the time was out of town, and she received an invite to go to the state capitol and come to a roundtable discussion or meeting. And so three weeks into living in Hawaii, I'm at the state capitol, and there's a photo of this day, and I am wearing, like, pants and and shoes, and my, my hair is done a certain way. And for those of you who aren't aware, like we we just now wear like slippers and we have dresses and our hair is in a bun because it's hot. Um, so I looked really mainland for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at that meeting, though, Lori Unum was there. And I immediately recognized her because she has a, a bright red outfit on or her blazer and her blonde hair. She's just very stands out in a crowd. And we went outside of the meeting room to take a photo and she said, hey, are you, are you that um, behavior babe? And I said, yeah, that's me. I was so honored that she recognized or remembered me because, you know, we had only met once. She said, how nice of you to come out to Hawaii, to fly out here and try to help them too. And I said, no, um, I've moved here. And she literally, like, grabbed me by my hand and was like, we're going to pass autism insurance. Like, let's get this done then. Yeah. And, um it was by uh, no means uh, an easy thing to do, and it was not done by, you know, Lori and myself. It was done by so many people and after so many years of so many other people. And in 2014, the following year, we really thought it was going to pass. We got to the last two minutes of the session. We were so hopeful, and it did not pass, and we were devastated. I mean, I just got chicken skin, just got chills thinking back to that moment. It was heartbreaking. And... um that night, I I emailed our key legislators, and I said, um, I gave them all a Skinner quote, actually. Um, <laughs> I thanked them for their efforts, the ones who had really been our champions, and I stated, you know, um, the mistake is not in trying, right? It's, it's, it's in sort of never trying at all. It's kind of, that's the real mistake. I'm misquoting mm-hmm. and paraphrasing, but um, that's how I could connect and use our mm-hmm. science to kind of calm me down and to say, look, we can do this again. Like, let's not give up. Um, although that's all we wanted to do that night. And it was about a month later um, that I received an email from the Behavior Analyst Certification Board from Dr. Jim Carr. And he said, Amanda, we'd like to have you come out here, you and another person from your organization, Behavior Babe. And um, we're going to, we'll train you guys. And um I had to write him back and say, you know, Behavior Babe's not an organization. She doesn't have, you know, employees or, or acquaintances even. Like, it's just, it's a cartoon me, Jim. It's just me. <laughs> and he said, well, then bring your friend. You know, then find someone who you want to come. And um, it's incredible now to think back how that really set a lot of things in motion. So um, to get to your question, uh, I invited Kristen Kobabert, uh, who has now been so instrumental in doing so much here with implementation and appeals with insurance and so forth. And we went to the BACB and we met with about 25 other people from other states. And uh, Dr. Gina Green from the Association for Professional Behavior Analysts were there. And I remember this one talk in particular. Um, 
It was by New York, somebody from New York, and they talked about the difference an and and an or makes when you look at legislation. Um, so if it says things like, this must be done at a school, at home, and in a hospital, that's very different than at school, at home, or a hospital. And so um, Dr. Gina Green specifically really taught us that, you know, if you're reading legislation, uh, a capital a capital letter starts the sentence, and you wait until you see your terminal punctuation. So where's the period, where's the exclamation mark, which you won't see usually in legislation, um, or uh, you're not looking for the commas, and you're not looking for the semicolons. You're looking for the beginning of that sentence and the end, and in some cases, that's three pages later. So um, I won't say that reading legislation is easy, but I am really grateful to the role that Lori and Jim and Gina have played in that. And then, as I mentioned, Kristen. So we started to build our own local group, and we started teaching each other, and we started going to additional trainings. Um, the Autism Law Summit, um, which is still going, and it's in Wyoming this year in October, uh, it has taught me the most about law, and they have parents, providers, insurance funders, um, every kind of stakeholder is there, and it's, a, it's intended to be a, a conversation. So I guess I would say it's a lot through um, learning, late hours, uh, you know, sharp eyes, and talking things through with, with other people, which um, I do a lot. <laughs> you, you know, I think that that's a humble perspective. Um, I definitely hear the experiences you've gained, and um, it's obvious that you've had some great minds who took you in and provided guidance and shared with you what they had learned. So I appreciate that you share all of that. Um, but I think that there's this a simplicity with which you've kind of outlined the timeline. It's really parsimonious. It's, it's quick. Um, I'm not from Hawaii, but I can quickly learn what's been going on uh, across this timeline. Um, and I think that you've just gotten really good at it. And, and, you know, part of that is probably because you are behavior babe. You are relatable. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, you speak about licensure and behavior analysis, and, and you have that in the timeline as well. So a lot of what you just spoke with us about was insurance law for individuals with autism, which I think uh, finally passed in 2015, right? Yep, 2015. And um, it, it looks like after that you worked on licensure for behavior analysts. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, what the efforts were there? Because some of the unique features of what I noticed about uh, Hawaii is that you were able to write into the education law that licensed behavior analysts need to oversee functional behavior assessments and interventions as well. And I, and I don't think I've seen that elsewhere. Yeah, we have a couple of things that are really unique to our licensure law, but I will go back and give a little bit of the history of how it came to be in Hawaii. So I think for states, it should be a localized decision about whether or not or when to go forward with additional regulations. In Hawaii, we were told by the insurers in 2015, um, hey, we will cover autism. Like, we will go ahead and start providing ABA services for individuals with autism. 
as soon as there are licensed providers. There are just no qualified providers. And of course, we took exception to that. No qualified providers. Hey, there's behavior <laughs> analysts here, mm-hmm. um, albeit not that many at the time. Um, maybe uh, we were in the 70s, uh, about 70 behavior analysts when I moved to Hawaii in 2013. And so um, they said, the insurers very loudly stated, Yep, we'll cover it, we'll cover it, we'll cover it as soon as there are licensed providers. And in our legislative session, you can only introduce bills up until a certain point, and then beyond that point, you, you have to wait another year to the next legislative session. And mm-hmm. and our insurers know that. Everybody who's involved publicly in public policy um, becomes aware of those timelines in Hawaii. Uh, maybe some, some entities have lobbyists or other people helping them. We were doing this completely as a grassroots movement, and it really turned into the Hawaii Association for Behavior Analysis coordinating those those efforts. Um, in 2015, I was the president of our state chapter. Uh, Kristen was on the board as well as Kathleen, uh, Kathleen Penland. And I remember the hearing. We were sitting in with the um, Committee on Commerce and Consumer Protection. So perfect time to talk about, you know, whether or not we need regulations. There were about four people in the room. Now, when we talk about um, autism services or we talk about licensure of another profession or we've talked about any of this stuff since, there was 100 people in the room. So the fact that there were four people in the room was pretty interesting. And, um, I mean, we didn't have all the committee members, but just enough to make quorum. We had um, the Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs and somebody from our Regulated Industries Complaints Office. And those would be the licensing entities and the regulation uh, enforcer. And then Kathleen and I were there. So when I say four, I guess maybe six to eight people. But um, when the insurers testified, hey, we'll do this as long as there's a licensure, um, Senator Baker said, all right, you and you. And she said, Ashley, and my name's Amanda, but it's okay. You can call me Ashley if you're giving me the authority to help out. And she said, you know, go out in the hallway and, like, tonight I want you to work on this licensure law. I want you to write it. And I will find a vehicle and I will I will get it in if this is what we need to get the coverage for all these children that we all know we need to do. Uh-huh. And we were stunned. We were like, wait, what? I don't know how to write a law. And um, I'm just learning how to read them and to talk to people about them. And so I remember, I think we even have a photo of this. I'm notorious for taking these photos. And um, Kathleen was taking notes and our state regulated agency was saying, we will not license assistant behavior analysts. Um, We will only license, and you know, how come they only have a master's? Where's the doctorate? Like, so they were looking for parallels with other professions and, we we explained a lot. Um, we sat there for two hours on a bench in the state at the state capitol in Honolulu, and um, basically um, we were under the impression that the lobbyists who were um, being supported through Autism Speaks could help put this together or could get it together. Um, and then maybe about an hour later, we were told, "Hey, you know what? The licensure thing's really kind of your thing, and you guys need to do that." Um, so I remember calling, uh, Jim Carr again and might've been like 3 a.m. his time. I'm not sure, but it wouldn't have been the last time that we've had to call him in the middle of the night. And, you know, we asked him a couple of really critical questions like, Hey, does it matter if we don't license the 
um, assistant level. And, you know, he gave us a lot of guidance. He didn't tell us what to put and what not to put. We refer to the Model Licensing Act, um, which many states use, so it has all the framework for the language. Um, we had the, that knowledge from going to the BACB and hearing from Dr. Gina Green and others. We had been to the Law Summit. So, like, it was sort of like, now is your time to shine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, my very good friend was visiting from Massachusetts with her daughter. They had saved up money to fly out to see me in Hawaii. So I will never forget that it was February 18th of 2015 when we drafted this legislation because my friend and I um, went to the hotel room. I kind of said goodnight to them. Luckily, they were still on East Coast time um, around 8 p.m. And um, my friend and, and also HABA board member, Laura Bollinger was in the room with me. She was hanging out with us. And on speakerphone, we called in Kristen because Kristen was on Maui and we're, we're an island chain. And the three of us, for four hours and one minute, went through the Model Licensing Act and wrote what we thought would be the best version possible of a licensure law for our circumstances in Hawaii. And um, it got edited and revised after that. It wasn't the final version but it was sort of like, this is our proposal. And I'll just remind listeners that I had said when we testified that we don't need, um, you know, to be licensed. It's not required. You know, Ohio has a certification. There's other ways to reimburse. We now have now in 2019, 50 states that, all 50 states that offer reimbursement for ABA services for individuals with autism. And we only have about 30 states with licensure, even now. So we, we said it wasn't, it's not necessary, but it became necessary through our insurer's um, request or demand. Mm-hmm. And so our schools here are very much in um, disarray. And we have one public school district, meaning that it's one sort of entity. There's one entry point and gatekeeper to our all of our students and all of our islands across our entire state. And at the time, and unfortunately, even now, if you go to a simple Google search for Hawaii public schools and special education, you will see in the last year children who have been duct taped to chairs, bungee cords, punched in the throat by the special education teacher, um, raped on a school campus with an aide present. And so we really felt like there are issues maybe definitely that go well beyond applied behavior analysis services or beyond services, um, you know, for children with autism or with related disabilities. And we thought, but this is the area that we might be able to help with. And so our licensure law included the schools. We did not carve them out. We also, I believe, were the first state to require registered behavior technicians as the direct support workers, um, meaning that frontline staff and um, we were very clear, of course, our licensure law is not specific to any population, so it's not about autism, although that's what kind of started the conversation or made it as urgent as it was. Um, it goes well beyond that. And so in 2015, uh, after some edits and getting this to our legislators, um, licensure for behavior analysts passed, and it included any time a child required applied behavior analysis services in the schools, that those services must be provided, designed, developed, and overseen by a licensed behavior analyst. It also required that implementation for any ongoing services, so anything we might think of as intensive ABA services, 
would need to be delivered by a registered behavior technician. And um, that was something that didn't have a lot of contention, didn't have a lot of debate in 2015. It went into effect in 2016, and on about the second day of the legislative session, um, the Department of Education requested to be exempt. And they did say, hey, that's not being done in other states. You know, like, we shouldn't have to adhere to this law. And we've had a lot of discussions in 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019, and we will be having them again in 2020, um, as to what this means, what this looks like. So in our state, there were some extensions, which we were in support of, you know, give time to build capacity to get people on the right track. But we also had, um, we have Medicaid uh, really actively covering services. Of course, that was after a lawsuit, which you can see in the timeline as well. Mm -hmm. Um, All of these things are really playing together. So I think that timeline is really important in showing the sequence of events and you know, from a behavior analytics standpoint, for, you know, I guess I would say the motivating operations, right? They shift over time. And um, now we're at a place where it's time to roll them out this school year. And so we're going to see what, what that implementation looks like. And hopefully we have some attempt at fidelity and the spirit of the law. It's um, super interesting, both reading the timeline about this and hearing from you about the sequence of events, because when I saw that you were able to uh, write in the RBTs and to write in the licensed behavior analysts as the qualified individuals to provide services, um, I was super excited about this, because of course here in California we've had a bit of a hard time and we've had other stakeholders who... Uh, for whom this becomes a turf war, right? And and we don't want to be specific only to providing um, services to individuals with autism. Um, you were able to um, make the the essentially the legislation not just apply to a particular clinical population. So it's super exciting to see that. Uh, and then it's interesting to see that getting that passed through was not enough. Now it's just being challenged and getting it executed has been uh, where a lot of your time and efforts are being spent. Um, You were saying that you are continuing to be challenged by and continuing some of your efforts right now. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you feel things are going at this time for kids and what you see coming forth um, maybe in the next year or two? Yes, absolutely. You know, I just want to kind of circle back to to a statement that Dr. Gina Green said to me years ago. She said, you know, if you decide to include the schools, this will be something that you will you will fight for your entire life. And um, I don't think she was wrong at all. She was definitely right. But what we decided was it was a fight that was worth fighting. And so what we've seen over the years is families becoming more empowered, um, more educated, teachers speaking up. Um, the support of the Hawaii State Teachers Association has been um, instrumental as well as the Hawaii Disability um, Rights Center. We have a lot of allies in the community and in our legislature as well. I think, you know, just like with any behavior plan, you know, you have to sometimes contact the contingencies in order um, for those consequences to shape your behavior. and. Um, Aubrey Daniels, very smart man, Dr. Daniels said to me, you know, we cannot shape the behavior of people we don't come into contact with. And I think that as much as it's been effortful 
and exhausting and sometimes really depleting, um, it gives us these opportunities to come into contact with individuals and it gives us the opportunity to shape and to educate and to share knowledge. And, you know, people can say things like, oh, you're in it for, you know, the money or you want, you know, recognition or you want acclaim. And I'll be really honest, I would just really love to lay in my hammock for a bit. Um, <laughs> you know, that's actually kind of what I had tried in my mind to move to Hawaii for. But um, so I think... I think that over time people recognize that these efforts are still happening, uh, the need is still there, and there are people still, you know, present and having these conversations. So I think a lot of those misconceptions do start to fade away. Um, and um, right now what we're seeing is this this um, summer the Department of Education has contracted with um, ABA agencies, except I would say that they've made some really interesting stipulations in those contracts. Some agencies aren't comfortable with that. We have a lot of, um, I think, inquiries into the BACB about things um, from a be the behavior analyst perspective. It's really mucky. It's really um, not clean right now. And I think that what we're seeing is within the field of behavior analysis, um, you mentioned, you know, California, California being so large. Hawaii is so separate and in you know, speaking um, from a geographic perspective, but we really did unite. Um, I think a lot um, when you when you you know when you stand against something or when you fight for something, you know, you're you're standing for something else. And so um, I like to kind of conceptualize it that we're not fighting the system or we're not you know doing this to bring down you know you know something that needs to be rebuilt. It's more about doing this and. We say for our keiki, um, which in Hawaii uh, translates in Hawaiian to for our children. And I think that our children still need a voice. And I think parents being empowered and teachers being empowered is going to help give um, our keiki, our children, their voice. You know, it's, it's amazing that you say that some misconceptions can be that some of your efforts could be for monetary gains. I see nothing but contrary to that, I noticed that there's a free 40-hour RBT course being offered. How did you manage to uh, even offer that to the public? I did do that. I did that in 2016, I believe, and that was when we were being challenged by the Department of Education, and the claim was it's too expensive. We don't know how we're going to train people. There's no way we can train people. And so um, I just sort of try to take away any excuses. And if we have legitimate barriers, I mean, I, I understand, and I'd be all for trying to put our heads together to solve them. But when I hear things like it's too expensive, we can't do it, I mean, our Department of Education has a $369 million budget. So I just said, you know what, I will offer it to the public 50 seats. Like, we'll just start then. They got a three-year carve-out. So um, 50 seats would be a good start, you know, versus zero be, um, registered behavior technician. So I said I'm going to offer it for free dollars and free cents. And I was working part-time at a private school at that time, and they were so gracious to offer me their space to run this class. Um, I took a week off of my job. I took a week of vacation, if you will. <laughs> and um, I had a, um, a colleague, Kristen, who I've mentioned a couple of times, who was going to co-teach it with me, but unfortunately got very ill and on the first day um, had to leave. And I ended up teaching 40 hours um, uh, with a live class 
and we had 50 spots. And there, out of the 50 spots, um, about 25, about half, were reserved with people who had Department of Education email addresses. And I was really excited about that. Um, even if they came on their own, I was stoked to see some people who might be working for the department be at the training. And the day of the training, um, 23 of the 25 of those people did not show up. And I don't know why that is. I'm not sure if that was a collective or individual decision um, that impacted all the attendees. But I was really frustrated because that prohibited anybody else from taking those spots and coming and learning. At the same time, the size of the class being about 25, 30 was really a great class to work with. And so, you know, you can find the positives with everything there. Um, something that's really neat about that is out of the people in the class, more than 75% went on to become registered behavior technicians. And um, I'm not sure if any of them actually are employed by the Department of Education, but it was, you know, a part of the conversation of saying this can be done. And let me show you that I'm willing to be a part of it. And if you don't want my help, then let me, you know, go get it somewhere else because it exists. And now in 2019, as we enter this school year, um, schools are telling families, we don't have a, any registered behavior technicians. It's going to take us time. We don't have to do it now until January 1st, 2020. And the reality is that we've had a lot of time, and it doesn't take this much time. And quite honestly, we've created behavior analysts in the time that it's taken uh, the Department of Education to, you know, kind of get on board with this. And and I think, as I mentioned before, that there are definitely people who want the knowledge, who want to do these um, things who are wanting to collaborate, and um, so we, I, you know, we we see it as a systemic issue, and it's sort of that gatekeeper who's um, holding, I think, our system back. And where we're at right now is um, a lawsuit has been filed. It was filed last fall, and um, I guess it's just sort of I like to say you start with, ed, you know, education, legislation, and then if that doesn't work, litigation. Um, and it's just that opportunity to hold the contingencies and the systems accountable for that. Because what it's resulting in is for children who have access, let's say, to insurance-funded services, like just starting there simply, they're not able to access those services during the day. Um, they're not able to access the density that's recommended. And they're not ever <laughs> going to make, you know, the optimal outcome if they're not able to access what the research suggests they should. And so that's been our, our motivation for really um, continuing the, the stance and the stand for our children. You know, so it seems to me that essentially um, I'm, I'm taking a bit of a different perspective. When I first looked at the timeline, it, it all seemed so pre-planned, um, so well you know, get one thing done and then write the other and then begin to work on the other. And now it seems to me that a lot of the efforts were based on what individuals noticed as barriers, and you kind of moved forward in trying to remove some of those barriers. That includes maybe passing the telehealth law, which I think is super cool because given um, your, you know, the islands, uh, it provides you with opportunities to give supervision and um, provide services to individuals who may not have access otherwise. Um, so would you say a lot of the efforts that 
um, you're taking, a lot of the things that you're doing are based on when you see barriers, you, you kind of try to remove them? Yes, I don't think that's any different than behavior analysts working in whatever area that you feel the most comfortable in. Um, I think about even early learners, you know, the VV map, we're looking at barriers and what are those barriers to inclusion and how do we make sure that we, we minimize them and how do we skill build so that we can move around them and how do we strengthen ourselves so we can lift those obstacles out of our way. And yeah, I, I definitely think that that's where the analysis comes in. I mean, we, we definitely try to pay attention to things like pairing and shaping and, you know, knocking on your door every day, negative reinforcement, you want me to go away, pass the law, you know, I mean, all of these <laughs> different components of behavior analysis come into it, but nothing more critical than looking at the data that's before you and making sure that you're making decisions based on the direction where it's going. So I think it's an interesting way to be a behavior analyst um, and to use those skills in something that we weren't officially trained to do, but was done out of necessity. Mm. So I see you gave some examples of, you know, at the end of the day, you're a behavior analyst. And um, everything I know about Dr. Kelly is that you take a behavioral lens to everything. Um, and, you know, I was going to ask you, how do you incorporate the principles of behavior analysis into some of the public policy efforts that you're taking? And you just gave some examples, like negative reinforcement, I'm going to knock on your door until you get rid of me if you write the law. Um, are there others? Yes, definitely. You know, I did a talk in 2015, and it was really um, uh, at the HABA conference, and it was about how why behavior analysts don't get involved in public policy, and I talked about things like competing contingencies and ratio strain and what happens if there's no reinforcement for a long period of time, and, you know, you get procedural drift and all of these things definitely come into play, and we want to think about them when we're talking and meeting with our legislators as well. So we did things like bringing cookies to the Capitol, and we made sure they were in sustainable packages, and we made sure that they had our logos on them or that they had our you know, key phrases on them. Um, we made sure that we were giving information in bits and pieces. Don't overwhelm. Lori Unum talks a lot about the three Fs, like, First, you ask for a favor, and then you show up in your fishnets or something memorable, and then you give them the facts. And so mm -hmm. it's definitely, you know, I don't sit there and say, oh, well, let's put them on a, you know, VR3 schedule. I'm definitely not thinking about schedules of reinforcement quite like that. Um, but you do see it in everything you do, and you see it more as you kind of take the lens of or take the approach of, like, let's let's portray this data, let's look at what we've done and that analysis part that comes in. And yeah, sometimes we see things aren't going in the right direction and we have to pivot, we have to adjust. And that's just to me no different than putting a little, you know, phase change line or condition line right down the middle of your graph and saying, okay, now we're gonna do this. And hey, sometimes you do a reversal, not because you meant to, but because you don't have money to fund the lobbyists. So maybe you had lobbyists one year and lobbyists not the next year. And if you kind of end up going back as often as we do, you might have the ability to look at that systematically. So, yes, definitely lots of different uh, components of behavior analysis embedded in all of the pieces of public policy. <laughs> Super cool. You know, I think um, you may get this question from people who come into contact with you. I certainly get it from students. Often uh, they want to be involved at a public policy effort. 
and at, at a public policy level. They they want to do more, but they don't quite know where the entry point is or how do they start. Um, do you have any advice for those individuals? First, I just want to say thanks because we want you to be involved too. Yes, <laughs> get involved. Um, everybody has a role to play. You know, I have always been a talker in my life, so um, I grew up with my father in the Army. I would try to make friends quick because I was moving or they were moving. I can say hello to a stranger on an airplane and later on, um, you know, be a bridesmaid in their wedding. <laughs> like Things like that happen. To I have me. witnessed you do this to people. <laughs> <laughs> you have. And so I can be that person who has a lot of comfort being, you know, the one testifying or being the, the face or taking some of the slack that comes with it because I've, you know, I've got a lot of support in other areas. That doesn't have to be everybody's role. We needed people to, you know, get parents involved. We needed someone to help um, sort legislation. We needed someone to help with the website to make sure that we could get information up there and updated every 24 to 48 hours during our legislative session. Um, I would say if you want to get involved, contact your state chapter, see what they're doing, ask them questions, learn about what's been done, Ask them, you know, what they think you can do to help. If they don't have an answer or there's not a momentum or you don't have a state chapter, um, you know, I would just say, like, I don't, I don't encourage people to just go look for, like, you know, a battle to fight. But if there's something that you need to tackle or something that's happening around you in your world that you want to impact, that's a really good entry point into public policy. For us and for me, that was autism insurance and licensure behavior analyst. And then it's moved on to things like looking at, you know, banning single-use plastics and looking at different alternatives and looking at how we're going to combat, um, you know, traffic issues. And so the knowledge that I've gained from my original passion entry point has helped me be a more active um, participant in my own government. And I am of the personal opinion that it's, um, very difficult to participate in and you know we have people on neighbor islands who cannot show up and testify um, we don't have the ability to, to remote testify or they were trying it out but I'm not sure if it's there yet or you might live really far from your capital but you can talk to people you can put up flyers maybe you're the one who bakes the cookies you know even even when we did that um, here in Hawaii the, the woman who does that she's a BC ABA who also is a fantastic, um, I'm sure cookie maker is not the right phrase for that, Kat, <laughs> sorry, um, uh, cookie designer extraordinaire. And, you know, every level of it, we try to involve our community. And so sometimes that's just in wearing a certain color to the Capitol, or maybe it's just in, you know what we did that so many people participated in all across the world was in 2015, we did a social media campaign and it was hashtag Malama Arkeiki, which in Hawaiian means to care for our children. And we got behavior analysts, we got individuals with autism, we got people's, you know, pets and people in their, on their hikes to, you know, stack rocks that said Malama Arkeiki or to write it in the sand. Mm-hmm. And we took that to make an image of awareness and just put it all out there and everybody was participating. So, Um, maybe you can seal the envelopes and put the stamp on them or go check the mail. Like there's so much to be done. And um, 
by just saying that you want to help, you you probably don't even realize, you know, those individuals how much somebody like me has been waiting to hear that. So it is intimidating. Don't be intimidated by it. Um, try not to be, and just find your entry point. That's awesome. That's that's awesome advice for anyone who wants to get involved because it certainly seems intimidating, but it's very good to know that you can just contribute by doing. Um, things that you know how to do uh, by just being present, agreeing to do errands, um, and that all of those things are needed, of course. Um, but I think we forget when we look at such um, large tasks that are uh, being taken on. So it's very cool for you to share that. Thanks. And thanks, Ellie, for you know giving me the opportunity to, to be a guest, um, especially on my own show. It's sort of like, it's like being in the passenger seat of your own car, right? Like, you get a different perspective and view in the journey, um, but it's been it's been a joy, and you're you're stellar at interviewing. So I really appreciate that um, and this opportunity. Thank you. I really appreciated you allowing me to do it too, because I think you have a lot to share, and it's super cool for people to hear. Um, I also really recommend for everyone to take a look at your website with the timeline and the way that you have explained uh, the sequence of events that is uh, super cool, super relatable, even though uh, I obviously don't live in Hawaii, I learned a lot from the website. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Thanks so much. And for anyone who's interested in learning more, you can go to the ABA Advocacy Hawaii page or all of the other advocacy dropdowns at www.behaviorbabe.com. 